Well, it's Mother's Day. What a perfect time to hear from Paul. His last letter, last letter ever written, he says this in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as I did my, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I am reminded, remind you to to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, and love and self-control. The woman writes, perhaps it is no wonder that the first people that Jesus were surrounded by in his birth were women. It's no surprise that at the end of his life, at the end of the time of his ordeal on the cross, it's only women who stayed. They never had known a man like this. A prophet, a teacher, who never nagged at them. A man who never flattered them, never coaxed them, never patronized them. A man who never made jokes about them. He never rebuked them with an attitude or praised them with condescension. A man who took their questions and their arguments seriously. A man who never fenced them in. A man who never urged them to be feminine and then jeered at them for being so. A man who never had an axe to grind or a male ego to defend. A man who took them as he found them without thought for himself. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole of the Gospels that borrow its flavor from female perversity. No one can find in the words of Jesus or the deeds of Jesus anything funny about women or about their nature. And yet, at the time in which Jesus lived, men were in the business of looking down on women. The Jews used to pray this way, the men in the synagogue with their hands raised toward heaven, and they prayed this, Lord, thank you that you've not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Every day, Paul prayed that prayer. And yet, 15 years after meeting Christ, listen to what he says. In Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. 
free man or slave, man or woman. Imagine the change that was necessary for him to say that. Imagine this Hebrew Pharisee being able to say with his own lips, in Christ there is no male or female. Did you hear about the person who dialed the wrong number? Got this message. I'm not available to take your call right now, but if you leave a message, I may get back to you. You see, I'm going through a lot of serious changes now, and if I don't call you back, you're one of them. (laughs) In all of the Bible, there's no one that changed more clearly than Paul. Of all of the adherents to strict Orthodox Judaism, no one walked as plainly and as clearly and as passionately as as Paul. He goes to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council, and he asks for authority to crack down on these Christians, these followers of the way, these followers of Christ. The Sanhedrin controlled every synagogue and every town and every municipality in Palestine. And they give him the authority. He goes to punish any group, especially Christians, who pose a threat to the religious system of Israel. This week I met a, or read of a pastor in Illinois whose sister died at 44. She was diagnosed with cancer at 40. Before the diagnosis, she was the life of the party. She was always enthusiastic. Everybody loved to be around her. She was thrilled at living. And every time her brother came and told her about Jesus, she said the same thing to him, I'm not interested. It may be fine for others to follow Jesus. It may be fine for others to have a religion, but it's not for me. I'm fine. I'm doing well. But at 40, her life caved in. Not only is she diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, she finds that her husband has another woman and he wants a divorce. And it's in that context that she comes to know Christ. All of a sudden, Jesus becomes her main priority. Not because of guilt, not because of fear, but because she knew him, loved his heart. She begins to live for Jesus with the same gusto she lived for herself. Before and after every surgery, before and after every chemo, she would tell people of the joy that she had in her heart for Jesus. She invited everyone she knew to stop running from Jesus and start running to him. And then a week before her death, she talks her way out of the hospital. She goes to a church one evening and is baptized. Now, she had planned this, and so she invites all of the people she knows to come to the baptism. And after she goes down into the water and she's sopping wet, she speaks for 15 minutes about Jesus and how he's the most important person in her life. And that night, her 84-year-old father comes to know Christ. So does her sister, so does her aunt, so do a number of nieces and nephews. And you know who else came to Christ that night? Her ex-husband. You say, that's quite a change. 
No greater change than what happens in Paul's life. When you come to 2 Timothy, you come to the last letter he ever writes. Somebody has said, the ink is barely dry when the executioner's axe fell on his neck. It's arguably the most moving letter that he writes. And maybe that's because the subject of his letter is his love for Christ and his love for his son in the faith, Timothy. By this point, they had traveled the world together. Remember, Timothy had been in Rome when Paul was first imprisoned. And now, in his final imprisonment, Paul writes him a letter. It's the last hours of his life, and he knows it. You know, it said when Copernicus died, all he could think of was himself. He quoted the words he wanted on his tombstone, and they're there today. I seek no kindness equal to that given to Paul. I ask no grace like that given to Peter. I crave the forgiveness that thou didst grant to the robber. Paul could have written that. Paul could have written some sort of apostolic injunction, but instead he focuses more on the recipient than the sender. From the outset, he makes it clear that his main concern is Timothy. And it's interesting, when you read the letter, you find that Paul is not here acting like a mentor or like a master theologian or missionary or teacher. He's acting more like a mother. So let's dig in and I'll show you what I mean. First of all, notice, if you will, the prayer. Look at verse 3. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as I remember constantly, remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Have you ever heard the charge leveled against Paul that he's arrogant? He's egotistical. He's a male chauvinist. Well, this is one place they go to show it. They say, listen to what he's saying. I serve God as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. What a self-righteous bloviator. And yet, isn't it interesting, in the letter that precedes this one, he says to Timothy in chapter 1, I'm the chief of sinners. Isn't it interesting, when he wrote to the Philippians, he said, I have not arrived, I'm not yet perfect. Think of his forefathers. Abraham was faithful enough to God to take Isaac, his son, and go up that mountain. He has the knife ready, poised in the air, and God stops him. He's ready to obey God no matter what, and yet he's the same man that on two separate occasions lies about his wife being his sister. Think of Moses. God calls him to lead his people out of bondage, and yet this is the same man who lives in bondage for 40 years for killing an Egyptian. Think of David. He's a man after God's own heart, and yet he's the same man who takes another man's wife and has that man murdered. See, the Bible's an honest book. It portrays our forefathers and foremothers honestly. They have strengths and weaknesses. It's a mixed bag. They have good days and they have bad days. So in what sense... 
Do they serve God with a clear conscience? Soren Kierkegaard answers it this way, to will one thing. You see, the chief desire of every ancestor in the faith is to follow the Lord and to love him without reservation. And that's what Paul means when he says, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience. And what does he do when he's thanking the Lord? He's praying for his son in the faith, Timothy, night and day. Do you know what he means by that? What he means by that is my desire and my love for the Lord is matched by my desire and love for you. In fact, my love of the Lord and my love of you are inexorably linked. William Mackay was 17 when he left home to go to the university. And as he's walking out the door, his mother gives him a Bible. And she says to him, I hope you read this from time to time. Well, after a few weeks at the university, his mother gets word that her greatest desire has not been achieved. I mean, he's not reading the Bible. He's partying like crazy. In fact, he gets so low that in his biography, autobiography, he said, I sank so low that I sold that Bible for a bottle of whiskey. Well, over the years of his university training, he didn't just party, he also studied, and he became a medical doctor. And he goes to a large hospital in London where he has a patient who is terminal. And one day, the patient in his... labored breathing, asks for the nurse to get a book out of his belongings, and she brings him the book. In 24 hours, he dies. Within hours of his death, the same nurse takes that, by, that book and gives it to Dr. Mackay. And he says, why? What's this all about. She said, just look at the inside cover. And when he did, he saw his name and the words that his mother had written. And they said this, night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. He went back into his office. He shut the door, got on his knees and trusted Christ. Second, notice the passion. Look at verse 4. I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Now think, think of the guy who's writing this. He's the one who's able to say to the Philippians, in whatever state I find myself, I'm content. Whether I live or whether I die, I live to Christ. I long to be free of this body of death. I long to be with the Lord, but on your account, I'll stick around. He's the same man who says, forgetting what is behind, I I press on toward the high calling of Christ. And yet, look what he says here. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. You see what he's saying? He's saying, Timothy, I can't forget your tears. In fact, your tears have become my tears. Think of it. He may have forgotten everything else, but he never forgets the tears 
of his son in the faith. Did you hear about the little boy who came to his mother and said, Mommy, why do you cry? She said, because I'm a woman. He said, but I don't understand. She said, you'll never will. (laughs) So he goes to his father and says, Daddy, why does mommy cry all the time? He says, well, all women cry, son, mostly for no reason. And then decades later, he says to the Lord, Lord, why do women cry? And the Lord says, listen to me. The beauty of a woman is not in her clothes. It's not in the figure she carries. It's not in the way she combs her hair. The beauty of a woman is seen in her eyes because her eyes are the doorway to her heart, the place where love resides. You read the New Testament beginning in the book of Acts chapter 8 and when you read about this Saul who becomes Paul, all you read about is his reason. He wants to safeguard the truth. It's all about his head. He has said over and over, listen to me. Apply your logic. Peter even says, his teaching is difficult to understand. But look at the end of his life. It's not his head that impresses you, it's his heart. His eyes are the doorway to his heart. And in his heart, there is love for Jesus and his son in the faith. Third, notice the persuasion. Look at verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now we know from Acts chapter 16 that Timothy's father was a pagan Greek. His mother and grandmother, however, were Christians. Now, Paul knows that God has no grandchildren. He knows that the only children of the Lord, the children of God, are those that are born again by the Spirit of God, and that's God's doing. In other words, if Lois and Eunice had been pagans, Timothy still would have known Christ had God decreed it. So what's he saying about them? He's saying that each one of those women have played a critical role in your development of faith. I mean, I see it every day. I see parents, I listen to what they say. They're concerned about their children's athleticism. They're concerned about their education. They're concerned about their social integration. They're concerned about their materialism. They're concerned about their future. But, you know, it's a rare parent that I hear talking about the spiritual condition of their children. Did you hear about the mother bird who was building a nest? She was meticulous. I mean, all of the nest was, was perfectly constructed all the way around it, except it had no bottom. So one day a man said to the bird, why no bottom? And the bird said, well, I love having babies. I just don't like raising them. <laughs> you know what the writer of Proverbs says? Now, we have it memorized this way, some of us. Raise up a child on the, in the way he should go, and when he is old, is not depart from it. But that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, raise a child on the way of its mouth, and when it is old, it will not depart. 
And in order to understand what the writer is saying, you have to understand that if you're a Hebrew woman and you're in labor and you are ready to deliver, you had a midwife. And the midwife's job was to deliver that baby safely. And an amazing thing, before anything else was done, when that child emerged from the mother's body, the first thing the midwife would do was take her index finger and put it in a flask of olive oil and then take that finger and put it on the roof of the baby's mouth. And the reason was that that olive oil was salty. And then that midwife would take the baby who was thirsty because of the salt and put that baby on its mother's breast. And what the proverb, the writer of Proverbs is saying is in the same way that a midwife creates a thirst in an infant for mother's milk, so must we seek to make our children and grandchildren thirsty for the things of the Lord. You say, but I'm such a bad example. I don't always walk in the way that I should walk. Nobody does. Anybody who says they are walking perfectly is deluded or lying. The issue is not perfection. The issue is a thirst. And the question is this, how thirsty are you? Have you ever been thirsty? Do you know what really makes you really thirsty? I mean, ready to attack? It's seeing someone else drink in front of you. That's what Timothy saw in his grandmother and his mother. Can you think of any greater testimony that a mother can have than to be able to say, my son, my daughter, thirsts for Jesus. Can you think of a greater joy than to be able to say, my child has a heart that is soft toward Jesus? Is there any greater success than that? Your child may never be rich. Your child may never score the winning goal. (laughs) Your child may be dumb as a rock. (laughs) But if your child knows and loves Jesus, is there anything greater than that? I mean, look at Paul. He goes from a false success to a true success. He goes from mercenary to mother by knowing the one who is like no other. And the more he knows this man Jesus, the more he loves him. And the more he loves him, the more he becomes like him. You see, the woman is right. It's no wonder that the first person at the manger is a woman. And the last people at the cross are women. Because when you get right down to it, it's all about the heart. Think about that. It's Mother's Day. Amen.